The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn down your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as you continue in this series from Paul's letter. Two of the biggest problems that have plagued humankind since the beginning are man's fear of death and fear of the end of the world. Pastor Walker addressed the problem of death uh, from the passage in chapter 4 last week in affirming that Christ when he returns, will bring those who have died in the Lord with him. Well, tonight we consider the nature of Christ's return and when the world does indeed end as we know it. How should we prepare for that great and glorious day, that great and awesome day that is frequently referenced by the Old Testament prophets and even by the Lord Jesus himself? Interestingly, both the passages at the end of chapter 4 and here in chapter 5 Paul concludes with an exhortation for believers to encourage one another with these truths as we face these very things that we fear. Let me read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation." For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is God's holy inspired word. Our gracious Father, once again we would ask that you might bless this exposition of your word, that you might give us eyes to see and hearts to understand its meaning and its application to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just two weeks ago, my family and I joined 
my extended family down in Florida for a vacation time. We joined my parents and my sister and uh, her family and a cousin of mine and, and her family as well, joining my parents who were treating all of us to a three-day Disney cruise. Now, most of us spent the night in a hotel in Orlando, and uh, there we uh, prepared for a Sunday departure in the afternoon time. During breakfast Sunday morning, as uh, we were feeding our children, my mother joined us, and after our children were finished eating, my mother looked at me with a rather grim expression and said to me, you will never guess where your father is. Well, my mind was racing with possible replies, but all I could return was a blank stare. My mother proceeded to inform me that my father was on a flight back to Houston, Texas. They had left their passports at home. And as you know from international law, you are not allowed to board the ship, a ship heading down to the Bahamas without your passport. A year's planning. My parents dream of all of our families. My sister lives out in Nevada. We live here. It's hard for us to get together. All the dreams and expectations built up. Now, hanging in the balance, contingent upon this last-minute plan to fetch their all-important passports. Well, my parents, well, my mom went on to retell that at around midnight the night before, my father realized their predicament. And why does a sheet inform my mother of the situation. Well, they spent about an hour exploring their options, trying to call the Disney hotline, and that was no help to them. So they were left with no other recourse but to try to reserve a flight, and he was able to reserve a 6.30 a.m. flight from Orlando to Houston. He got the last seat available. And his goal was to get to Houston by 8 o'clock, get on a taxi, drive 45 minutes to the house, get the passports, and then go make a 10 o'clock connection at a different airport in order to make it back to Orlando in time to get a shuttle and make it over to Port Canaveral for the ship's departure. Well, needless to say, neither of my parents slept very well that night. As anxious as they were over the prospect of not being able to join myself, my family and my sister's family on this planned cruise. Well, my wife and I were given an opportunity, an opportunity to share my mother's burden, to listen to her, to encourage her, and to really commend her for having such composure under the given circumstances. And as we talked a little further about the situation and recognizing my dad had very little turnaround time, very little margin for error, so I encouraged my mother to call a neighbor, call somebody who could go in the house, get the passports, and meet him part way to cut down on the long commute time. And thankfully, she was able to find a good neighbor who was available at that early Sunday morning hour who went in, got the passports, and met my father and cut off the commute time, enabling him to make his flight on time, and by God's grace was able to join us that afternoon uh, winded and, and ragged and yet uh, thrilled to rejoin the family uh, for a wonderful three-day cruise. Paul writes to a people perplexed, a people grieving, a people anxious 
over matters much graver than a family vacation. We might think missing a vacation or another important date is the end of the world. Paul here is talking about the real thing. This church in Thessalonica had questions, had anxieties about the return of Christ in the day of the Lord. And people have the same questions today concerning their fear of death, their fear of the end, that day that will change history forever. But for those of us who are believers, who are secure in Christ, who have our passport to heaven in our possession, we are called to encourage others, rooted in this confidence that Christ has died. Christ has risen, and Christ will return again. And because we have this assurance of Christ's return, we must encourage one another daily. I believe there's at least three ways Paul calls us to encourage one another in this text. Encouraging readiness for Christ's return. Encouraging righteousness as we follow Christ. And encouraging rejoicing and the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. Paul urges believers to be ready for Christ's return because his return will be sudden and bring certain destruction. It's implied and indicated by verse 1 that the church had asked Paul, perhaps in the form of another letter, concerning the times and the dates of Christ's return, a matter of which they had not a little anxiety. Now, Paul admits here that he does not need to answer the question as it is assumed that he had already taught them on this subject when he had been present with them. But Paul, being the wise and compassionate pastor that he was, knowing how people have a tendency to forget and need reminding, goes on to instruct them again here using the very simple image that Jesus himself used, that the Lord will return like a thief in the night. A thief does not announce his arrival because that would defeat the whole purpose of the theft. Under cover of darkness, he masks his misdeed so that he can escape undetected. The wise head of household, who is concerned over the threat of burglary, posts a guard or makes other security measures to be vigilant, vigilant with readiness. Believers who are assured of the Lord's return are called to be ready, like the ten young maidens who have their lanterns well lit, like the household servants who are ready for their master's arrival at any time, prepared for his return. We do not know the day or the hour. Jesus even tells us that he does not know the day or the hour, but only the Father. However, we know him. And we know what he expects of us at his return, that we would be found faithful, trusting him, and going about the Father's work humbly, testifying to the greatness of the Lord our God. Christ's return to claim his own will be both sudden, and with it will come certain destruction upon the wicked who are unprepared for the day of judgment. Paul speaks of this time in verse 3 of a people who will presume upon peace and security 
and be caught unawares. On that day, the stock market may be booming as it is in our own day. People will be laying up securities and treasures like Mr. Bigger Barnes building more storehouses for his grain. And yet none of these things will merit them on the day of God's wrath. Paul compares the day of judgment like labor pains coming upon a woman expecting a child. One might say I have some experience in reading the labor pains that come upon a pregnant wife having successfully taken my wife to the delivery room seven times. I have not yet had to deliver a child on my own, although we've pushed our limits at least once or twice. I believe Paul compares the day of the Lord to labor pains because once they have been initiated, there is no turning back. Ready or not, here it comes. A woman in labor is overwhelmed, overtaken by a process that will be carried on to completion. And so in verse 3, Paul says that such people who are caught unprepared will find no escape. The most important application of this text to everybody listening tonight is are you prepared? Are your bags packed? Do you have your passport in hand? Are you ready to board? Are you prepared to meet your maker on that awesome and dreadful day? A fake passport stamped with your good deeds, your own righteous acts, your own pedigree, your accomplishments, all of your religious piety will do you no good. You need the real deal. A passport stamped with the precious blood of Christ. That's the only way to get aboard this ship. You see, on that great and awesome day, there will be only two judgments. One is a judgment of vindication for those who stand in the righteousness of Christ by faith alone. The other is a judgment of condemnation for those unprepared, for those who have rejected or neglected the only way of salvation that's offered through Jesus Christ by his life and death. In many ways, a believer is like a woman expecting, filled with anxious excitement and a longing for that day, for that labor to be complete. Hold fast to that assurance that you have, that you are ready, that you are prepared to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. But if, like me, you have other ones, you have loved ones, you have friends and family members who you're not so sure are ready, are they prepared? Are they ready for that great day of reckoning? Has God placed you in other people's lives to be a witness? to help them be ready for this great day. We're called to be a witness to the truth, to remind people, to show people that as in the days of Noah, there's only one way to be saved. There's only one place to go. There's only one refuge to escape the coming wrath. 
while destruction is being heaped upon those outside, those of us in Christ are safe on board, admitted only by his precious blood shed for us. This is not a popular subject for Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner. It's an awkward and in some ways despised, unpopular message in our enlightened age. But friends, let us not be content with peace and security. Let us be bold. Let us love well. Let us sound the alarm where we are able to take action. Time is short. The departure is nearing. Let us encourage one another towards readiness. Well, such an occasion as Christ's return also raises up questions as to how are we to live in the here and now until that great and awesome day. Well, Paul not only calls us towards readiness, but to pursue righteousness. And Paul gives us four contrasts to distinguish God's people from the people of the world in verses 4 through 8. Verses 4 and 5 tell us that we are not children of darkness like the rest of humanity. Rather, we are children of light. We are not people of the night. We are people of the day. Scripture affirms that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Jesus proclaimed that he was the light of the world. He also calls us in the Sermon on the Mount that you, we are light, the light of the world, as we bear his likeness. And if we have trusted in Christ, we have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. We're called to walk in the light as he is in the light, to have fellowship with him and with other believers. Wise parents warn their children that nothing good happens after midnight. Only the misdeeds of darkness. God's people are called to be a people of the day, to walk in the light, to be about their father's business, doing the good deeds that he has prepared in advance for us to do. Peter exhorts us to live such good lives among the pagans. They accuse you of doing wrong. They may glorify God in the day he visits us. The next image Paul uses is that image of sleep. He tells us to not to be found asleep, but to rather be awake and alert, unlike the ten foolish virgins whose lamps were low on oil and were unprepared for the arrival of the bridegroom. People who are asleep are unaware of destruction. In our old house, my wife and I would occasionally have a problem with our smoke detectors. They would go off in the middle of the night. And so we'd wake up and have to diffuse it and change a battery or what have you. And we noticed that usually our children just slept right through it because they were young and experienced. Mature believers know the sound of the alarm. And we're called to prepare others, to awake others from their slumber to prepare and be ready for the danger of destruction. Be awake. Be alert. Be ready. Do not sleep on the job. Rather, be vigilant at the coming of the Lord in truth and righteousness. Well, the final image that Paul offers is that we are to be sober, meaning of sound mind and not to be deluded like a drunkard. And I believe Paul here is is challenging more than just our drinking habits, but using it as a symbol of the whole Christian life. Sobriety is akin to self-control. 
We might even say that, that Paul uh, here, you can even link it to his exhortation in Romans 12 that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We must have our wits about us, choosing the right from the wrong to avoid falling or pursue wisdom. The folly of drunkenness leads, as symbolized in the habits of unbelievers, is to indulge in sinful desires, to follow the idols of the age, to put faith in worthless, worthless things, and to engage in false worship, none of which will deliver on the day of wrath. Well, it is no mystery what the Lord expects of his followers. Regarding readiness for his return, we're called to walk in the light, to be awake and to be alert, to pursue righteousness with sobriety and to be wise. We're not to speculate the day or the hour of Christ's return through speculative interpretations of Scripture. Rather, we are called to a duty of word ministry, of readiness, of telling others, of, of demonstrating the truth from Scripture. We're also called to deed ministry, to show others to whom we belong. There are boundless ways that we are called to exercise our righteousness, the way we spend our time, the way we spend money, welcoming other people into our homes, responding to the needs of others. All of these are indicators that the Lord is ours and that we are his. Are you a peacemaker? Blessed are the peacemakers who show grace, who show mercy, who forgive those who have wronged them especially difficult people in our families and at the workplace, to demonstrate kindness and patience on the roads as we wait in long lines during the shopping season, to know our neighbors and co-workers, to know enough to know how to pray for them, to serve our calling as a kingdom of priests, to give them the gift of intercession that others might see something of the righteousness of Christ. May the Lord make you and I a beacon of righteousness, not to promote ourselves, but to exalt him, who is the very storehouse of all righteousness. Well, I believe there's also a third way in which Paul is calling all believers to encourage one another, and that is a rejoicing in the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. And in verses 8 through 10, we learn that redemption is both the way God protects us from the coming wrath and also gives us the promise of enjoying Christ's presence forever. Well, to help us in this calling to pursue righteousness, to walk in the light, to be awake, to be sober, Paul says in verse 8 that we are to put on the breastplate of faith and love, to wear the helmet of salvation. These would have been common sights of armor worn by the Roman guard throughout the empire. Armor serves for protection. And friends, we have to equip ourselves with spiritual gear ready and marked for salvation, just as the pre-incarnate Son of God joined the three Hebrew men in the fiery furnace of Babylon, shielding them from its heat. So we are protected from the fiery wrath that is to come. 
when we trust Christ alone for our salvation. One of the challenges we've had in the past in our Little League Baseball League is that sometimes dads who are serving as umpires either refuse or neglect to wear their protective gear. We give them a face mask, we give them a chest protector, but they, either out of laziness or a show of toughness, refuse to wear it and bring injury upon themselves. Christians not, must not be so negligent. We're given armor. We're given protection because the battle is fierce. We have an evil one seeking to destroy us, to overwhelm us, to discourage us, to bombard us with doubt, with fears, with anxieties. You know, sometimes we have a hard time putting the armor on. And we need one another to help us, to be equipped, to stand firm, to stand strong, to not trying to be a lone ranger, go it alone, but to be in fellowship and community in such a way that we can stand against the attacks and the temptations of the evil one. So may we encourage one another to stand firm, to utilize the means of grace for our protection. But redemption in Christ not only protects us from coming wrath, it also yields the promise that we will enjoy God's presence forever. You may recall the crisis that Moses and Israel faced at Sinai after the Golden, golden calf incident. In response to their rebellion, God resolved that he could no longer go with the Israelite people. He could not bear the presence of their sin and rebellion. And you may remember how Moses made intercession and made blood sacrifice so that God may continue to be with his people. But that only anticipated the one final sacrifice and the perfect intercession that's come to us in Jesus Christ. Verse 10 of our text says that Jesus died. He died a sinner's death. He died as the perfect righteous lamb of God for all of God's elect. Whether asleep, meaning died in the Lord, or alive at his return, that we might live with him. You see, God has found a solution. God, who was separated from us, we who were alienated from our great and merciful God, have now been reconciled in Christ. God found a solution to this problem, offered in his own son's death and resurrection, to make it possible for us to be in God's presence, our sin forgiven washed away and cleansed, that we might be holy and righteous in his presence forever. Friends, I believe it's this very truth that we're called to encourage one another. Christians struggle, battle doubt, wrestle with assurance, are bombarded with anxiety, question their salvation, And we're called as believers to come along and remind people of where they stand. To remind one another of the finished work of Christ. To remind one another that our acceptance is not based upon our performance. It's not a midterm exam. It's not how well we have measured up to God's law because we all fail. 
and we're accepted by grace alone through faith alone in Christ. You see, God is not requiring of us perfection and performance and pleasing him in some impossible standard. Rather, what he requires of us is humble acknowledgement of our sin and of our desperate need of a Savior, not only for our salvation, but for the whole of the Christian life, to learn to walk by faith, to learn a daily regiment of repentance, of joyfully coming to the end of ourselves, recognize I am helpless and weak without a merciful Savior who carries me through in this pilgrimage every single day. Friends, we're called to encourage one another in this. Because people have trials. Our friends suffer. We experience the loss of loved ones. Some of us are facing terrible and awful, painful diseases. Some people are facing overwhelming financial difficulties. Some people have really straining and difficult relational challenges that are only brought to the forefront and made more painful during the holiday season. May we encourage one another. Might we grant perspective to one another, reminding one another that our sins are forgiven. All of our debts are paid. Our shame is covered. Our hope is secure. And we will live with him forever. You see, the glorious truth is that all of the sorrows of this world are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. One day, we will be with the Lord to enjoy his glorious presence in a world no longer tainted by the presence of sin, no longer filled with pain and death, darkness, and all the other afflictions of this cursed plagued world. Christ has gone ahead to prepare a place for us, and he longs for the day. Christ looks forward to the day when our race is finished. On that great and awesome day when he returns, announcing that all is finished. Enter the joy of your master. The table is set. Let the feast begin. Upon returning from our vacation a week ago, my wife and I felt compelled in looking ahead to next year when my parents will actually have their 50th wedding anniversary two days after Christmas next year. We felt compelled to honor their marriage, to pay tribute to them, and Lord willing, we are resolved to go to Houston. No small task for our family. And we haven't revealed this to my parents yet, so keep the lid on it. But we want to go and join them and celebrate with them and have a party with their friends back in Houston. And that requires planning. I need to coordinate things with my sister, make reservations, send out invitations, and to prepare for what we hope will be a glorious day. The Lord Jesus has made all the provisions, all the preparations for a great and glorious welcoming a celebration, a banquet, a feast. And the Lord himself was anticipating with great joy and delight to be united with his church like a groom with his bride. Friends, I am convinced the Lord, the Lord himself is longing for the day 
when the Father will say, the day has arrived. Let us claim our people. So friends, let us join our Savior with that longing, with anticipation, in readiness, in righteousness, in rejoicing, that that day may come when we will enter into the happiness of our Redeemer. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you that you have secured for us an eternal salvation and inheritance, and that we, as we look forward to the return of Christ, we have not a day of dread, but a day of hope and joyful reunion. We pray that you would sustain us and encourage us. May we go forth with gratitude, with joy and worship, as a people redeemed and set free. For the praise of your glorious grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.